We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. And tonight we're going to see three things. We're going to see a poor steward. We're going to see a poor response. And we're going to see poor Lazarus. And so tonight, as we see all these things, again, it's a reminder that we need to be living for eternity. It is a bleak world out there right now. There is chaos happening everywhere. And if we live for this world, man, we are going to be sorely disappointed and hurt and harmed by that. But when we, when we live for eternity, man, it's so cool. A, it doesn't mean that the things of this world go away. It means that the things of heaven become the most important thing and everything else falls in place. You see, so often men think, if only I had a little more money, if only I had a little more success, if only I had a little more of that, then I will be fulfilled. But here's the reality. Talk to the richest people in the world tonight. Talk to Bezos. Talk to Elon Musk. These guys are trying to go to outer space because the things of this world will not fulfill them. They have the resources to get anything, anything and everything, and plenty of it. And they're not fulfilled. And I believe that is because nothing in this world can fulfill us. And it proves that something outside of this world is what we were made for. Amen. And so we are to be living for eternity because that's where the fulfillment comes. And at the end of the day, this is why Jesus came to die in our place so that we can have eternity with the father. Because because of our sin, the wages of our sin was death, eternal death, separation from God. But Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And everyone who believes upon his name shall be saved, as Romans 10, 13 says. With that said, we're going to be in Luke 16. Go ahead and open up your Bible. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 when we begin to look here at the poor steward. It says, he also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship for you can no longer be steward. So first of all, we want to remember that I believe some commentators are split. Is this a new scene? Is this a continuation of the beginning of the scene from Luke 14? I think it's a continuation of that scene because Jesus had a multitude of people. It doesn't say that he's left and traveled anywhere. It seems like he had that group of his disciples, a group of mul- that, that were just like people that made up the multitude, commonplace people and Pharisees and lawyers and scribes. It started in Luke 14, 25. Seems like he's been teaching them with the uh, parable of the lost sheep last week, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son. And see, now Jesus says, hey, we're going to talk about a steward, this unjust steward. And the reality is that Jesus just taught about the parable of the prodigal son, a son who took all the inheritance and he wasted it, right? But we talked about this. The end of the day, it was because he repented though. He came back to the father. The father bestowed upon him sandals and a robe and a ring and they celebrated and had a big old feast showing that the father, it was never about the riches and the goods. It was about having that relationship with his son. The father wants his child to come back to him. And the message was to repent. But if anyone heard that message, they might start to think, okay, so we can do whatever we want with the things on this earth. Let's just squander all of our goods. And so Jesus is telling his disciples here, specifically according to verse one, he says, look it, there was this rich, this rich man who had a steward, a steward, you might say, what is that? That's someone that's basically, I would, I would say further than a financial advisor. It's like a financial manager. It was someone that was going to take care of all the resources for the, 
for the, the, this rich man. As some, he was going to take care of all of his properties and his business and all of his stuff, right? Well, what we're told here in this case is that this man has been embezzling. He's been, at the very least, he's been lazy to do the things that he should have done with what was given to him. You see, the role that was given to him, it wasn't his riches. It was the rich man's riches. But he said, hey, I'm going to be a steward for you. I'm going to take this stuff and I'll invest it and I'll go out and I'll loan it out so that we can make as much as possible for you, the rich master, right? Well, what happens here is that there's a charge against him. It says, hey, you've been doing something dishonest. You took my goods, the master would say, and you, you, you didn't do what you were supposed to with them. And see, you might say tonight, well, man, it's a good thing I don't have to manage any big finances for anyone, so this story doesn't apply to me. Well, here's the deal. This is about much more than finances. Yes, there's financial wisdom in here, but this is not going to be Financial Peace University, okay? I'm not Dave Ramsey. I am going to be giving you what the Lord wants us to take away, and here's the reality. First Peter 4.10 says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What that means is whether they are spiritual or practical riches the Lord has given you, you should use them in a way that furthers the kingdom, that draws others into the kingdom, and you should be using them wisely. But note that in verse 2, it said, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And see, this is huge because this man realizes, man, I'm going to have to give an answer to the master for what I've done with his riches. Again, they weren't the financial managers. They weren't the steward's money. They were his master's monies, right? But he says, man, I haven't been doing the right things with them. He says, I'm going to have to stand for the master and explain this. And here's the reality. All of us are going to one day have to stand before God, the master, and give an account for what we've done. It says in Romans 14, 10, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And see, we're gonna have to say, what did we do with the things we were given? You might say, well, I'm not a Christian, so I don't have to worry about that. Here's the unfortunate thing. You've been made in the image of God, but you've also inherited sin as Romans uh, 5, 12 talks about, right? You've inherited it through Adam just as one man sinned. That sin entered and spread throughout man. And because of that death entered the world and spread to all men, the fact that people die proves that sin is alive and well still. And the fact that every person dies means every person is going to have to stand before the Lord and give an answer for their sin. And so you might say, well, I don't have some like church ministry to give an answer for because I don't go to church. I'm doing this. You're going to have to answer for why you had the breath of life given to you, made in the image of God, and you did not surrender to the master. You didn't surrender to God and use those God-given abilities and talents and the spiritual gifts you could have had in him had you surrendered to him. So tonight is the night. You need to surrender to the Lord Jesus and say, I want to be a good steward tonight. And for those of you that are already believers and say, hey, I know I'm going to have to stand before the Lord. Here's the good news. We don't have to fear this in the sense that we're afraid we're not going to get heaven. Let's be clear. We do not get heaven because of what we do. We get heaven because of what Jesus did. Amen. It's not because I'm a good steward or I'm good with finances or I did a lot of things with spiritual gifts. That's not what saves us. We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the sacrifice upon the cross that is Jesus's death, his resurrection, it says that he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me, Jesus said this in John 5, 39, I believe. He said, 
you, sh you shall have eternal life. You pass from death into life. You shall not come into judgment. That's because you believe in the words of Jesus. Now, here's the reality, like James 2.17 talks about. Without works, faith, it's, it's like dead, right? So if you believe and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there will be works that come out of your life and you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ as 2 Corinthians 5.10 talks about. And you will be rewarded for the things that you sincerely did in his name for his glory. And man, I don't know about you. I don't, I'm not afraid of that in the sense that I think I'm gonna like get sent to hell. That's not how that works. But I reverently fear showing up there and being found a bad steward. I want to be found a good steward. Like in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 through 20, right? The ones that squandered their master's resources, man, they were relieved of that privileged position. But those that did well, they received more. And so I want to be like that. I, I, I assume you want to be that too. We want the approval of our maker, the approval of our master, the Lord God, God the Father and Jesus Christ, amen. And so look at verses three through eight. It says, then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he has dealt shrewdly for the sons of the world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. So here in this story, we have this lackadaisical, it's a good word to use here, I believe, this steward, right? This guy that's supposed to be investing his master's riches well. He got lazy. It seems like he gave out the money for people to use, but then he didn't do anything. He didn't follow up. He just did, did the most basic thing he could. He just gave the money out and didn't check in on it, didn't do anything. Well, now... He becomes suddenly active, right? Because he realizes he's going to have to give an account for what he's done. And so in verses three through four, the unfaithful steward realizes that he'll soon be without a job. He says, man, I'm not going to have support. I'm not going to have favor. I'm not going to have this position that is such a good position to have. He's like, man, what am I going to do? Like, I need to plan for my future. Okay. That's what the unjust steward says. He says, I need to think about the future. Okay. So in this case, he says, well, here's the deal. I don't want to dig. That's, that's essentially to say he didn't want to do hard labor. And uh, he didn't, so he didn't want to dig. He didn't want to beg. He's like, I'm too proud for that. Like, I'm a steward, man. I'm not going to go out and beg. So what I'll do is I'm going to plan something that will secure my future. I'm going to go out to all of these people that owe my master. And I'm going to give them deep discounts so that they pay back now. So that when I get called out on the carpet, I can show my master, hey, I've been doing work. Look at all of this money I have for you, right? So he's, he's quickly moving now that he knows that there's accountability. Accountability is so important, right? Fellowship is so important. If you get out of fellowship and you get out of accountability, you will find yourself in positions where you're doing really unjust, unrighteous, dishonest things. And sometimes you just get lazy. 
And see, it's so awesome. I, I believe it's Acts 2.42 and Hebrews uh, 10.25, I believe it is, that talks about how important it is for us to fellowship together. We need to be together and we need to be growing together and keeping each other sharp, saying, hey, when I see you, I'm going to check in to see if you shared with that person that you talked about from your job. I'm going to see if you shared with your brother or your father or your sister or whoever it is. There's that accountability that's there. And as long as it's in the spirit of, hey, we want to further the kingdom, it's not this judgy kind of thing. Let's get out of here with that, right? Let's esteem others better than ourselves. But that's Philippians 2.3 talks about that. We do want to stir, stir each other to these good works and spur one another to go do the things of the kingdom, right? So this guy, he's like, man, I'm going to get called out. He starts showing up to all of these different people's places, right? He, it seems like he calls them all together, actually. He calls all of these guys together in verses five through seven. And he says, here's the deal. Quickly, right? Look at, look at this in verse six. He says, a hundred measures of oil, the man said he owed. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So he's, he's giving him a, a, a 50, like a 50% discount, right? And then the next guy, he says, how much do you owe? He says, a hundred. He says, take your bill and write 80. So I don't know, maybe he didn't like that guy as much. He only gave him 20% off when the other guy got 50% off. But the point being, you can feel the urgency. You can feel the anxiousness in this man. He says, I have to gain favor with these debtors because my master is going to fire me. But maybe because of these discounts in the future, I will have a place to go because I've done this work. I've served this purpose that is good for me in the future. Okay, so you're tracking with me, I think, here. This unwise steward, as dishonest as he is, is wise enough to consider his own future. See, that's where Jesus is going with this. Because at the end of the day, he, he realized, man, I need to be using my present resources, my present position, my present opportunities to prepare for my coming future. He says, I may not have this much longer. And in that sense, man, we don't know how long we have on this earth. We want to be good stewards today. Don't do it because you think, oh, well, I, I don't want to get fired. That's not the logic here. Just we're called to be good stewards, <laughs> Again, 1 Peter 4.10, right? Like we should just be doing this. This is our reasonable service unto the Lord to be living sacrifices, right? It says that in Romans 12, one through two. We should be going out and serving the Lord with just like hilarious giving and just being excited to serve his kingdom with all of our resources, with all of our substance, with all of our, our time. Whatever it is that's valuable to us, we should be willing to say, man, I want to do this now because my future is in eternity. That's the place I want to invest in. And as I invest in eternity, I'm also drawing others into eternity. We're going to see this. But notice this in verse 8. The unjust steward stands before his master for review. And he's actually commended for being like prudent and shrewd. So that's kind of crazy to think about. And many people have read this section and they say, this is weird. Is Jesus encouraging embezzlement? Is Jesus suggesting that we go out and we start doing all of this crazy um, discounting and cheating? Like, like if you work for a business, just go out and give discounts. You're not supposed to be given to set yourself up. People have a tough time with this, but read it verse by verse here. And we see what happens. Jesus says in verse eight. So the master commended the unjust steward because he dealt shrewdly. Hey, you went out and you did something with my money. You, you finally got some return on my portfolio, right? Because the master in this story, 
from what we can tell, he's an earthly guy that just wants, wants riches. He wants more riches. And so he sends out this guy and this guy's concerned with his own future and his own riches as well. So there's this common spirit of, Hey, let's make money. Let's advance. And thank you. You finally stopped being lazy because you knew this inevitable review was coming up and you did something wise. You didn't just stay home. And so Jesus isn't advocating embezzlement or poor dishonest business practices but he is calling us to serve our master, the Lord, with similar zeal and energy. See, as Jesus says at the end of verse eight, he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And see, this is said to our shame, to the shame of the disciples in this sense. Why are we not faithfully planning for our future and eternity as with the rigor and the zeal and the excitement as the world does for earthly things that pass away. I mean, think about it. The the desire of this world to get rich, the desire of this world to get famous. Man, we as believers, we're lackadaisical. And I'm speaking of myself. I, I think you can relate to this, but we get lackadaisical in comparison to that zeal that the world has. But see, we as believers, we should be marked for our Fervency for the kingdom, both living for eternity and sharing with others about eternity. Because again, as we invest in the kingdom, what that means is we're going to be drawing people into the kingdom. We're going to be using spiritual gifts that the Lord gives us in the power of his spirit to edify the body, the church body, to glorify God before the world and the church, to testify to the lost that, man, this is real, right? Colossians 3, 1 through 2, it says, if then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. And see what happens to us, myself included, we get so distracted with the things of this world. Don't get me wrong. There is a reality that we do have to work, right? I believe it's 1 Thessalonians. uh, It's at 310, maybe. It says, if you don't work, you don't eat, right? (laughs) It's plain and simple. Paul was a guy that made tents, right? Like you'd go camping and no, back in their times, they lived in them, but he was a tent maker so that he could be above reproach. I myself, I teach guitar lessons at a music school and I'll be real with you. There's times when I go there and I go, man, why am I doing this? Because we were made to work. We were made to work. We were always made to be like God. God himself worked while he created, did he not? The first six days of creation, he worked. If God works, we should expect to work being made in his image. But when we start to make work and money and wealth our God, that's a problem. See, financial resources and things, these should be like practical instruments to further the kingdom and further God's will. They should not become our master. We should not be enslaved to these things. There's such a fine balance here. And this is what Jesus is talking about. We should be as excited for the kingdom as the world is about earthly things. They go out and do unjust, unrighteous things to make more money. We should go out and do the righteous, just things of sharing the gospel with the lost. Amen. And so look at verses 9 through 13. Jesus is going to apply the parable in three different ways. It says, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon that when you fell, they may receive you into an everlasting home. That's the first one. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you do, I'm sorry, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, 
who will commit to your trust the true riches. And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? And in the third application, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So Jesus, between verses nine to 13, he just breaks down what the money, what money should be to us, what the things of this temporal world should be to us. First of all, in verse nine, Jesus said, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. First of all, I got to note the authority on this. Jesus says, I say to you, forget what the world says about resources of, of, of riches and money and things. Listen to what Jesus has to say. He's the authority on all things. So he begins that statement with this, this authoritative tone. And Jesus is saying, look at Disciples, I exhort you, use earthly riches in a way to where your possessions and your resources that are stewarded to you by the Lord, use them wisely, right? Wealth, again, it's referred to as unrighteous mammon in this case. And note though, Jesus explains how we can take unrighteous mammon and we can redeem it for good. We can use it to make friends and brothers, right? Philos in, in, the, in the Greek here for, for friends, make brothers in eternity. We can use all of our resources and we can go out with that similar zeal to that unjust steward. We can start planning for the future that is eternity by winning people over using the master's wealth, the master's gifts, the very simple gift of my body, my breath, and my lungs going out and tell people about Jesus and living it out for them to see. You know, it's interesting, Ezra 7.10, this is way out of nowhere, but I feel like the Lord just gave me this verse. It says, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of God and to do it and to teach statutes in Israel. Here's the deal. He sought the, the, the law of the Lord and to teach it, but Ezra had to do it. It's so easy to use the breath in your lungs to tell people about Jesus, but let's use the legs on our body to walk it out, Amen. Let's use the hands that the Lord has given us to actually go and commit to the kingdom. The things that the Lord is calling us to do. Let's be like Ezra in that. Let's not just be lip service. And I'm telling you because, man, this is something the Lord has been dealing with me so much on. I, I preach the gospel every Saturday and Sunday. And then I go to a workplace with lost people, right? No more lost than I was, by the way. I hope you understand that. I, as much as a sinner as I was a sinner. And I know the redemptive power that is theirs in Jesus Christ if they were just to submit to it. But how are they ever going to know if I'm too, too afraid to say anything? It, again, that balance. You want to be a good employee. You don't want to waste company time. That, you know They're being paid to do a job. But you got to find those opportunities any chance you get. When you go to talk about the other things you're passionate about, you should be talking about the Lord with that kind of zeal. That kind of passion should be there. And we should use whatever the Lord has given us our talents, our, our resources, it might be our home, opening up our house. You know, I, I think about just opening up the home to people that need to grow in the Lord. Sometimes that's all someone wants is just to sit down and have a conversation over a cup of coffee and say, man, tell me more about the Lord. It doesn't always look like just inviting them to church, but I will tell you this. I read this this week. It was something like 70% of people that come to church for the first time is because their friend invited them, not because a pastor invited them. So keep that in mind. If there's someone you want to get to church, man, invite them. <laughs> Give them that invite and bring them down. So use your resources that you have, relationships. 
Use your positions at work, the people that you work with, uh, you know, whatever you may have to, to draw people into the kingdom. And why are we doing this? It's because someday when we cease, when we fail, we'll be greeted in heaven realizing, man, the things we invested in here on this earth, relationships, bringing people to Christ, they're with us. Our brothers are there. They receive us. The blessing and the reward that comes from sincerely giving out the gospel, that's waiting for us there in heaven, right? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So first application in verse nine. Verse 10 through 12, we get the second application, which is where Jesus is telling us to be faithful in earthly resources because it also reflects the character and the ability to handle then true riches. So you might say, what do I mean by this? Well, the reality is, if I take earthly things that are passing away and fading, right? In the Lord's eyes, they're nothing. They're least of these things, according to Jesus. If we take the least of these things and we cannot do well with them, why would the Lord give us good, rich opportunities in the kingdom if he says, you're squandering the little things that I've given you? For instance, there's so many people that say, hey, I tithe to the Lord. I give my 10%, so to speak. Well, how are you spending your other 90%? It's just a, a, a real question, right? And that's a crazy thing to bring up and sometimes for, for people. It's uncomfortable. But I will tell you, keep your 10% if you're going to live like a maniac with the other 90. <laughs> Commit it all to the Lord. And I don't mean that by giving 100% of the church. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not some prosperity gospel, dude. I'm not on TBN at three in the morning right now. I'm not selling you a magic wallet that produces money. What I'm telling you is it's not just the Lord doesn't just want your money. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. But when he has your heart, you're going to do well with all of the resources that he gives you. All of the cash, all of the, the, you might say, what cash? Hey, I'm with you, right? But whatever cash he gives you, whatever money and, and, and home he gives you, whatever car he gives you, whatever food he gives you, whatever books he gives you, you read a good book, you want to give it to someone else. You, you know, little things. When we take these things and say, I'm going to come into the Lord, the Lord says, I can trust you with more. I'm going to give you more things, not so that you can keep it here on earth, so that you can reinvest it in kingdom things. Amen. See, it's never about gaining treasure. Like, oh, if I give 50, the Lord's going to give me more so I can keep it in my pocket. That's not what it's about. I hope we understand that. We give the Lord in a spirit of we should be givers because God is the greatest giver. He's given much more than we could ever give back to, but we give to support the kingdom. You support the work of this church or whatever church is your home church. Praise the Lord for that. But the way we spend our money should be something where, hey, everyone can tell we belong to the Lord Jesus, right? It says in 1 Timothy 3, 5, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will we take care of the church of God? These are one of those, this is one of those verses that reminds me, if you can't take care of the most basic things, the Lord's not going to give you those greater opportunities. I mean, the Lord's gracious. The Lord is merciful. But the reality is that in that context, in 1 Timothy, this is talking about deacons and elders and qualifications. They said, if you can't run your house, you have no business running a church. And uh, trust me, it stings me because there's times when I feel like, man, that's me. <laughs> I'm bombing out at home. I better, I, I got to pick it up if I really think that the Lord's going to give me an opportunity. It starts with the little things, right? And so the third application here, and don't worry, we're almost done with this section. In verse 13, it's a real simple one. Jesus said, 
No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Note that at the end. Jesus didn't say it might be difficult if you try to serve God and mammon. And you might say, what's mammon? Mammon is something you would rely upon. It was something that you put your trust in. And it usually is translated into money because that's what we know. We trust and rely upon money, right? Mammon, you can just replace it with wealth or finances or money. The idea is you can't serve both of them as your master, God and mammon. You're going to have a divided heart. Jesus says it's literally impossible. You just can't do it. But I will tell you, I love again that Jesus used a servant-master relationship here to express the reality that many people have fallen into. And that is they commit service to the God of money instead of the true and living God. I think I said this a little bit earlier, but here's the reality. Money and earthly possessions in and of themselves, right? They're, they're morally uh, neutral, Right. Like money itself cannot commit crime and also cannot like save orphans. We, with the money in our hands, depending on what's in our heart, can go and redeem it for good. But here's the deal. Money itself, even though it's immoral in that sense, or I'm sorry, it's, it's morally neutral. We can take money with our evil, wicked heart and we can turn it into a God. We can idolize it. And see, 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so again, this is what I said earlier for sure. And I'll repeat it one more time. View money as a temporal tool to serve God's eternal kingdom instead of serving money as a God. You see, at the end of the day, the Lord's gonna give you exactly what you need to further the kingdom, right? Matthew 6, 33, you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the other things will be added unto you. you I've never seen anyone outgive God. <laughs> And trust me, if the Lord is leading you in it, commit to it. And I'm not just talking about money. Let me be clear. I'm talking about your life, the time to volunteer at church, the time to go and witness to someone, the time to care for that stranger on the street. Man, give that to the Lord. He'll take care of it. He'll give back. He will. And if not here, in eternity, he promised it. But when you start serving the things of this world and you say, I don't have time for that stuff that the Lord has called me to, you now have two masters and you're serving only one in reality because Jesus says you can't serve two. If you feel like you're serving money more than God, the problem is you've made money God. You need to lay that down and come back to the Lord. That's the encouragement tonight. And so imagine Jesus speaking this, right? And we talk about this poor steward, but look at here, there's gonna be a poor response. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, now the Pharisees, our favorite people in these stories, right? The Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. <laughs> All right. We've talked about Jesus being at the dinner parties with the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers and how he calls them all out routinely. He says, you guys are a bunch of filthy maniacs that are legalistic and you just love men's praise. You love money and you live for this world and you think you're consecrated and set apart but you couldn't be anything further from that because you're covetous lovers of money. <laughs> I mean, these guys, it says that they derided him. The Greek word is ekmuterizo. And that means to turn one's nose up at the, at the, the proclamations of Jesus. They, they said, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Think about it. 
They're offended, first of all, in their hearts because they know that they're living the very lifestyle that Jesus is condemning. But secondly, they're looking at Jesus. They say, you're a poor man with a bunch of poor followers. Who are you to talk to me about money? And I'll be honest, there's a level where tonight you might tune in and you might have 25 times as much wealth as I do, which means you have like $35. No, I'm just kidding. But you have, you have more than me. And you might say, who are you to tell me this? First of all, remember, this is not just about money. This is about a divided heart. It's about a heart that serves the things of the world, not eternity. But secondly, at the end of the day, Jesus knows all things. He knows everything because he sees the hearts of men. And he says, the reason you're sticking your nose up at this message and don't want to hear it from a poor guy like, like me is because I just hit your idol. I just hit the thing that you worship, the thing that you love, and you don't like that. None of us like that. <laughs> Trust me. Everything that convicts is uncomfortable. We have two options. We either run away from conviction, which leads to condemnation, or we run towards conviction, which refines us and makes us more like Jesus, more like Lord. He will like a surgeon. He will remove that garbage from our heart. Run towards conviction. But these guys, they turn their nose up to the Lord and they're thinking, man, look at us. We are affluent. We're rich. We're loved by men. We must be blessed by God, right? But in reality, they gain these things through unjust and unrighteous behaviors, just like the unjust steward did. These guys were always taking advantage of widows. They were taking advantage of Gentiles that were coming in to make a sacrifice or an offering. And they would, they would just get these guys good. People would come in and remember all the money changers. They had their own currency so that they could make more money. They were selling like, like blemished animals and things so that they could make a bigger mark, a profit on the items. These guys were corrupt. And Jesus right here, he tells them, you might think that you're favored and blessed, but God sees right through that. You can walk around with that holy smile and those long robes and you could, you could just think you got it all. But at the end of the day, just like he told them in Luke eleven thirty nine, 39, Jesus said to them, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. That's a, that's a hard rebuke, right? And these proud men, they thought that they could justify themselves in their outward appearances, right? In their, in their fact that they looked holy, Jesus says, no, God sees your heart and he's going to judge that. Look at verse 16 through 18. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for the misuse of the law to, to justify themselves and their refusal to enter the kingdom through repentance. Look what it says here. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. All right, so you might say that's a weird section in this context. Let me take a second to break it down, okay? So in verse 16, Jesus points out that the Old Testament law and the prophets, they all pointed to the coming of the Messiah, right? That's what they all spoke of. They all pointed to, to the Messiah. Jesus was proclaiming to be the Messiah. I believe he is the Messiah, right? But these guys had heard him say this, but they didn't believe in him. But he's saying, look at you guys are supposed to be the, the, the specialists in the law. And it all spoke of me and it's ushering in the kingdom of God. And John the Baptist was the one that went like a forerunner before Jesus. And he was calling out this new era. And see, John, he preached repentance and declared Jesus to be the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And many, many people, as Jesus said, were pressing into the kingdom. They were entering the kingdom by faith in Jesus as the Messiah. 
But meanwhile, you had the proud Pharisees that refused to enter by Jesus. They rejected him as their Messiah. And instead, they attempted to justify themselves with their own convenient interpretations of the law. They said, no, there's not a new era. The law is the thing we're going to live by. But here's the reality. They didn't live the law like they should have. They didn't do like Ezra did. They, they made new versions of the law. They gave exceptions to things to make themselves look holy and right and the people miserable. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 4, he said to the Pharisees, you bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, and you yourselves will not move them with one of your fingers, right? So in other words, you tell everyone that you're doing all these things, but you wouldn't do them, and you make other people do them. You, you, you don't practice what you preach. So first of all, you say you're justified by the law, but you're not even interpreting the law correctly. And Jesus makes a statement here to make sure they understood. He's not saying that the law is just gone, that it's negated, and that it's abolished. We know Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And see, in verse 17 through 18, he's coming to say, look, it's perfectly fulfilled. I'm honoring the law because I live it out rightly. He even says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle. That's a little mark in the, in the, the, the original language. This little mark, like a comma or a period in our English, right? He says, none of that stuff's going to pass away from the word of God. We're still to walk after and observe it and honor it like the Pharisees say they do. But here's the problem. Jesus says, that stuff's not going to pass away, but you try to justify yourselves in the law. You're going to fail because A, you've already broken it by reinterpreting it. B, no man can keep the law. It was there to point how holy and right God is that man could not make up this, law, this legal code and that no man could make up the prophecy that was fulfilled by Jesus perfectly in the right timing, in the right way, in the right places. Jesus says, but you think you can do this, but you keep messing the law up over and over. You reinterpret it. And that's why Jesus brings up marriage. You're like, that's weird. Why is he bringing up like a love and respect type stuff here, right? Why is he bringing up marriage in the middle of this thing that's about them turning their, noise, their noses up to him over money? Well, note what he said here. He said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. There's so much in this section. We could spend days here and do a married, like marriage topical study in here. We're not going to do that tonight. That's not what this is about. Let me tell you what Jesus is saying, though. He's saying, I'm going to remind you what the law says. It says that if you divorce your wife, if you go out, it says whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Okay, these guys were famous for taking Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 through 4. It said, if anyone found uncleanness in their wife, they could divorce them. That was specific in the text. These men took that and they said, well, uncleanness could mean, hey, my wife doesn't smell that good today. <laughs> my wife has bad breath today. My wife burned my toast. I want a divorce. That's uncleanness unto me. And in this male-driven society at the time, they just did what they wanted. They said, yeah, that's true. We know the law and we're good and we understand it. We're not, we're not, it's nothing wrong with us. We can do whatever we want. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 24. They're reinterpreting it. But see, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 32 and Matthew 19, 9, that sexual immorality was the only lawful grounds for divorce. All else was adultery in the eyes of God. And so these guys were trying to justify themselves, but they're actually condemned. And you'll say, well, why did they, why were they always trying to get divorced? Because they thought we can't commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments, right? So here's like, like Joe Holy, the Pharisee, walking down the street, and this, this beautiful woman walks by, and he's like, oh, you know what? I just remembered my wife burned my toast this morning. She's unclean. Divorce her. I'm going to marry the new beautiful girl over here. 
this is the kind of stuff they did. And they said, oh, no, no, no. We have loopholes in the law that say we're still holy and we're still just. This is what Jesus is talking about. He says, man, let me remind you a basic thing. You're all committing adultery in the way that you're living. Don't think you're justified by the law. He says, I showed up and there's this kingdom now that you can enter in and you're refusing to enter because you want to justify yourselves and you can't. You've already messed up. You've already fallen short. And I'm reminding you of that. But so many are coming in because they're repenting. They're humbling themselves and believing upon the name of Jesus. But the Pharisees were too proud. And this poor response, if they stay in that condition, it will lead to condemnation and eternal separation from God. But they thought they were holy. They thought they were right. They were absolutely unjust. And so Jesus tells a story in this last section. This is where we're going to end tonight. It's a little bit of a long section, but we'll, we'll take it in big chunks. Verses 19 through 31, what he tells is the story of poor Lazarus, the poor man on earth. Now we'll see, Lazarus may have been poor on earth, but he was not poor in eternity. He was very rich in eternity. But see, these men that were sticking their nose up and turning their nose up to Jesus, they said, how dare you tell us what, what we're doing wrong? Because we're rich and we have favor here on earth, which means we have favor with God. So imagine that mindset. Jesus says, all right, I got a story for you. Let's look at verses 19 through 21 as he begins this story. It says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked the sores. So I want you to know something. I've begun telling you that this is a story. Some people will say that this is a parable. I do not believe this to be a parable. At no point is it referred to as a parable. At no point does Jesus re-explain it like he does with parables. At this point, this is Jesus saying, hey, there's this rich man and there's a poor man named Lazarus. That's big. Because let's say this is a parable. This is the only time Jesus ever uses someone's name. Never else does he, nowhere else does he do that. I believe that this is Jesus giving a glimpse into a true event that he knows. Because remember, John 1 tells us, John 1, 1 through 3, it says of the word, Jesus Christ, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Not a God, he was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. And here's the reality. Jesus is drawing from his knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of eternal things. And I believe he's recalling a true story. And that makes this section quite terrifying, if I'm being honest with you. It's the kind of story where as I'm studying throughout the week, man, it does one of two things. It either makes me super anxious to go out and tell the world about Jesus, or it makes me really uncomfortable about people that I'm not telling about Jesus because there's a real heaven and a real hell and it's terrifying. Bear with that in mind, okay? So with that said, look at verse 19, right? It said that we're introduced anyways to this certain rich man. And this rich man, he's abundantly wealthy and he's clothed in luxurious, majestic clothes and he's feasting daily. He's got it made, man. He's talking about Elon Musk. This guy's doing it up, man. He's got it He's, he's probably well-known, he's well-liked, he's got favor, he's got money. So he's doing great on the, in the earth terms, in the, in the earth mindset. But outside his house, by his gates that lead into his house, 
is this man named Lazarus. So the nameless rich man is inside, but the man we know by name is Lazarus. And he's laying out at the gate and he's got wounds all over his body. He's a sick beggar. His name means whom God helps, but it sure doesn't look like God's helping him when he's on earth. He's laying there and these dogs are walking up. They're licking his wounds. That's, I mean, it's just, it's terrifying. It's terrible to think about like dogs come over. It's tragic and it's like unsanitary. This man was clearly like unclean in the eyes of, of, of the Jews. This man laying out by the gate. The human beings would, would reject and deject this guy, right? Well, notice it says that he's waiting for food. When they had giant feast in Jewish time, in Jewish culture, I should say, in that time, they would have leftover bread at the end of the meal. And they would take the bread, and I don't know if it's flour or whatever's on the outside of like the flatbread, and they'd wipe their hands with it to get the, the, the moisture or grease from the food, the meat off of their hands. They'd wipe it on bread, and they'd throw the bread out. Lazarus is waiting to eat bread that people have wiped their hands all over. It's filled with leftover grease. He's just, that's how hungry he is. And he's got sores all over his body. This man is like the bottom rung in the eyes of the earth, okay? In the eyes of this world. Look at 22 through 26. Jesus continues on with the story. And look what happens. It says, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, there between us, and you, there is a great goal fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. This is like a terrifying nightmare if I'm being real with you. But Jesus tells it with a heart of love. Jesus speaks about this torment and the reality of eternal death because he wants the Pharisees to repent. Think about that. Not just the Pharisees, but anyone that's going to hear this story, he wants them to turn and say, man, I better start planning for my eternity now. Think about this. These guys were trying to kill Jesus and he's trying to save them. Man, I don't know about the people that you feel like you have to witness to. You may not like them very much. Jesus had every reason not witness these people and he did. And he told them with that heart of love to warn them not to wind up in such a place. But with that said, we note that there's just as they had two very different positions on earth, they have two very different statuses and positions in eternity. In verse 22, we're told that Lazarus died and he was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died, he was buried. Now on earth, he probably had one of the biggest funeral memorial services with all kinds of pomp and circumstance and everyone knew who he was. But on earth, the body of Lazarus was probably disposed of like just a disregarded body, probably thrown in the Valley of Hinnom where they, they, it was, it was a, a dump lit by fire. It's where we get the word Gehenna, right? Gehenna in the Greek. It comes from that valley where the dead were essentially like cremated in these places. And I don't want to get too into that. It's just a, a, a heavy thing to talk about. But I'll tell you, the reality is on earth, people said, man, that rich guy is way better off in the way he's being remembered than Lazarus. So keep that in mind. The world thinks it knows what's right. And the world think, thinks it knows what was the better life. 
But see, we immediately begin to see the contrast between the afterlife statuses of both of these men, the rich man and Lazarus. There's no angelic escort for the once wealthy man. You see, verse 22 shows that Lazarus was taken into Abraham's bosom. So imagine a place where he would be comforted and held by Father Abraham, the father of all the Jews, right? We can, we can assume that both of these men in the story, given the details here, were Jews, Lazarus and the rich man. He's received by Abraham and then... Here's this other man, the rich man. He's in torments. He's in a flame, it says, in Hades, in verse 23. And see, you might look at this and say, oh, that's because the rich man had a good time on earth. And since he had a good time, now he has to have a bad time. And since Lazarus was a poor, oppressed man, now he gets a good time in heaven. Incorrect. It has nothing to do with their wealth of why they're in heaven and why they've been received. This shows us that Lazarus at some point repented. And he trusted in the Lord and the rich man did not. We don't get the backstory, but we have to keep scripture in context. And even in this story, we see that the rich man will realize, man, I should have repented. And because he didn't repent is why he is in the place of torment, not because he was rich. So let's be clear, not a sin to be rich, but you will go to a place of eternal torment to hell if you reject Jesus Christ. That is the true and simple of it. And see, the gospel, it's a simple thing. And it's only ours because Jesus Christ is willing to pay the price to take away the wages of sin, which is death. But if we reject that, there is no hope. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how poor you are, how oppressed you are, how many reasons you have for why you didn't accept Jesus. The only thing that matters is what you did with Jesus. And we know Lazarus is in a place of comfort because he at some point had put his faith and trust in the God of Israel in the hopes that the Messiah would come and now the Messiah Jesus would come and complete his work upon the cross. Amen. I hope that you follow that. If you have questions on this, please reach out because here's the deal. We're talking about Hades at this point. We're told that Hades, this was a place that was pre-cross, pre-resurrection of Jesus and it had two compartments, okay? So the two compartments were the place of suffering and the place of comfort. Abraham's bosom was the place of comfort. The flame was the place of torment and souls of the dead were residing in this place. There were two compartments in one place. We're seeing that in the story. Jesus is saying it, not me. So don't take my word on it. Take Jesus's word on it. But you might say, well, wait a minute. Is that still how it is today? Well, according to first Peter three nineteen, Peter wrote this 30, some 30 years after Jesus resurrected, he says, that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison, speaking of those compartments. Upon Jesus' completed work and upon the cross, he went and he testified to the captives of Haiti. And you might say, well, okay, so in Hades, he went and saved everyone. No, he showed up and he proved to those that had rejected the fact that God would send the Messiah or who rejected Jesus himself. They said, man, he's here. We should have put our faith in him and they're gonna have to suffer in that torment and that remorse that they didn't accept Jesus Christ. But the people that were in comfort being held, waiting for the Messiah to come, who proved himself to be Jesus, when he died and resurrected, in that time between the, the death on the cross and the resurrection, he went and he told them, you're coming with me now. I've conquered death, we're going to heaven. So those in torments are in being held in that place, uh, that, 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 that flaming place of torment. And I don't like talking about it, so bear with me if I'm seeming uncomfortable on this. God forbid a pastor talk about hell and have a smile on his face. Not a good thing. But here's the heart of the pastor that talks about hell. You have the ability right now to go to the place of comfort. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, how oppressed you are, how non-oppressed you are, how white you are, how black you are, how yellow you are, whatever else. You might say, I've done worse things than anyone. It doesn't matter. Repent and trust in Jesus tonight. Amen. And see, then you can be told, that, man, you don't have to go to that place. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't made for man. Matthew 25, 41 tells us that, but it's the only other option. You don't want to be with Jesus on earth. He won't make you be with him in eternity. But you accept him on earth, he will receive you and accept you in eternity. 24 to 26, it depicts that, that terrible, terrifying reality that it's too late to accept and repent, right? Because the rich man, he starts calling out to Father Abraham in those verses. He's crying out and he's saying, look at, please, like, let, let Lazarus go dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue because I'm just tormented here. And this is wild because two things. The rich man was probably a Jew. I believe that because he calls him Father Abraham. He knew, he knew who he was, but also he has memory of, of things that happen on the earth. He knows who Lazarus is, and he is still assuming in his entitlement from the earth that Lazarus is below me. He's like a beggar. Go tell him to go do this for me. Go tell him to go put his finger in water and put it on my tongue. I'm, I'm higher than Lazarus. I'm telling you to do whatever I'm telling him to. And see, as Lazarus the beggar was ignored in his torment on earth, the rich man was ignored in his torment in eternity. And I don't say that because I'm happy about it. I say that because it's tragic. This man was so caught up in his wealth and his riches on earth that he didn't plan for his future. He wasn't prudent. And like, like the unjust steward, he didn't go out and get busy about planning for the kingdom and his future. And see what happens here is Abraham reminds him. He says, hey, you had all those good things on earth. Remember those? Remember those things that you spent your life in? Because of those things. Not because you had nice things, but because you trusted in those things and did not trust in the Lord. That's why this is happening. There's no personal relationship with the Lord. Again, I'm not just talking about a little struggle with these things. This man trusted in his own possessions for salvation. But Lazarus, who had nothing, he invested in eternity. And now he had comfort in the Lord. And so Abraham tells him, verse 28, look at this just can't happen. You can't come to this side and we can't go to your side. Think about that. There's doctrines out there that talk about things like purgatory. You just wait in this place, hoping that enough people pray for you and light candles for you. And then maybe you get to go to the other place. That's not here. That's not what Jesus says heaven and, and Hades is like. That's, that's anti-Jesus, anyone that wants to preach that. We know that the decision to be in either heaven or hell has to be decided now while on earth. John 3.36, Jesus said, he who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on. So you need to make a decision today. And then there's other theories and doctrines that say, hey, soul sleep, annihilation. When you die and you don't have Jesus, you just get like, you just go away. Or there's going to be a season where you just sleep and suffer because, you know, sleep away your guilt or something. I don't even understand because it's not biblical. But in this case, both these men were immediately aware and active in the heavenly places. And so you might say, this is scary stuff. Here's the deal. It doesn't have to be scary if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus. It tells us in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we're confident, yes, well pleased to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now you can show up with Jesus being your judge. You can show up with him being your advocate. It depends on if you put your trust in him today. I'm, I, all of my brothers and sisters online tonight, I know there's so many people suffering diseases and illnesses and they're terrifying to you. And I know the greatest question that keeps coming to mind 
The enemy wants to use this in your head. He says, if you die today, you're going to be in trouble. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. When you realize that the Lord loves you and he sent his son for you and you believe in that sacrifice, you don't have to listen to the devil on that anymore. You are going to spend eternity with the Lord. If you've repented, you've turned from those things of the world, you trust in Jesus, you're saved. You've confessed with your mouth, you believe in your heart. Now live like it. Whatever, whether you have a day or a decade or I don't know, somehow a century. I don't know if you're one year old watching this or something, but whatever you have in front of you, if the Lord tarries, use what you have left to invest in the kingdom. And so verse 27 to 31, this is where we finish tonight. Look what it says. It says, then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him, speaking of Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. That is a loaded, heavy statement that Jesus ends this story with from the mouth of Abraham. I believe this is a true story. Again, not a parable. We have real names here. It seems like Jesus witnessed this whole situation occur. And it sounds like it happened before Jesus was on earth because it sounds like it's pre-cross. It's pre, pre-resurrection. pre sounds like Jesus watched this from heaven. That's my thing. But you do whatever you want. Jesus is telling this. We know this much. It's true because Jesus is speaking about it. However we want to say Jesus knows this. He experienced it and he's teaching us about heaven here. And see what happens in this case is that the man says, please send Lazarus to my brothers. He remembers still that he has brothers on earth. Imagine the regret, the sorrow, the, the remorse that they're saying, oh my gosh, they live just like I do. They live just like I did when I was on earth. Please send someone to testify to them. And what did he say he wants them to do in verse 20 and 28? He says, I'm sorry, no, it's verse, verse, uh, 30, verse 30. He says that they will repent. The man knew in his torment why he was there. It wasn't because he was rich. It's because he chose not to repent. It's because he chose not to trust in the God of Israel, not to believe upon the coming Messiah, not to believe upon Jesus Christ. And see, in this case, he says, please go, go tell them, and Abraham simply says, look, at they have Moses and they have the prophets. That's the first thing. Like, what, what is he going to say that the prophets, the word of God has not already said? No, you just have the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. We have the full revelation of Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit abounding on this earth, doing great things. And we need to remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, according to Romans 10, 17. The word is capable but men's hearts are not willing to believe upon Jesus. It's not because there's not enough things. Signs won't do it. The word is what needs to bring people to faith. Jesus said in John 5, 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. It's a lack of willingness, just like the rich man. He says, please go tell my brothers about this place. And then he says, look at Father, Father Abraham, if someone was to die and rise again and go tell them, if someone rose from the dead, I know they'll repent. And see, that statement is such a wild statement because here's the reality of it. He knew that had he repented, he could have been saved, but it was too late for him. But he says, maybe my brothers will repent if someone rises from the dead. 
And I just, it's, it's insane, right? To think about, we want to think that's true. That if someone showed up and said, Hey, I've been, I've been to heaven. I've died. And I've come back to tell you, believe upon the word of God. We want to think that that would change everything, right? But here's the deal. We know that this would not be enough because Jesus himself did die and rise again and testified to hundreds and hundreds of people in his resurrected body and people did not believe. Praise the Lord for those who believe, but it's not as simple as just seeing someone risen back to life because history tells us, archaeology tells us, all these things tell us, this is true that Jesus rose again, yet people still don't believe. The reason they don't believe is because they don't believe in the word. They don't believe the word of God. And see, John concluded his gospel in John 20, 31. He said, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The reason you end up separated from God and in torments because you refuse to believe upon the name of Jesus. You refuse to believe the word. There's nothing else that can be done for you. You've heard the word tonight. Now, what are you going to do about it? If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, it's the time. The time is now. Salvation is here. Believe in Jesus Christ. If you are refusing to believe, man, I, I don't know what to tell you. There's nothing. Nothing will change your mind. You've heard the word. You've heard the gospel. There's no other thing that can save you. You need to really investigate who Jesus Christ is. I challenge you, if you don't know who the Lord is, go open the book of John and you ask the Lord tonight to show you if he is true, if he is real, because the Lord loves you and he died for you. He will show you. He will get your attention real quick if you're sincere. If you seek and search for him with all your heart, he will be found by you. The word tells us that. If you draw near the Lord, he will draw near to you. If you return to the Lord, he will return to you. Tonight, brothers and sisters out there, Let's go tell everyone about Jesus. <laughs> let's tell our brothers, let's tell our sisters, let's tell our mothers and fathers and brothers and friends that they might receive us when we enter into heaven and say, man, we all got here because of Jesus. And for those of you who don't believe in Christ, tonight's the night to believe, amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you now, Lord, and we just thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the heaviness of your word, but it shows your sincerity to reach the lost, Lord. Your desire to draw us into you, to love us and to care for us for all of eternity that we can be with you, Lord. So Father, I pray right now, if anyone is on the fence about trusting in you, Lord, I pray that tonight they would say, man, they have nothing else to lose. What possibly do they have to lose to say, I'm gonna try Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Because when people do that, I know this from experience, you prove yourself to be true. So if you're out there tonight, you're listening online or at another time on Spotify or wherever you may be listening to this or watching this, and you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can begin with a simple prayer. It begins here and it continues in continual repentance and walking in the Lord, taking up the cross daily and following him. But you would begin with a simple prayer and you'd repeat it after me. You'd say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.